Chapter Six of Their Yesterdays by Harold Bell Wright. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Tradition. It was summer time, growing time. The children of the little brown birds that had nested in the hedge near the cherry tree that year were flying now quite easily away from their little brown mother's counsel and advice. Even to the top of the orchard hill, they went in search of brave adventure, rejoicing recklessly in their freedom. But for the parent birds. The ties of the home in the hedge were still strong, and every day they examined with experienced eyes the cherries that, on the nearby tree, were fast nearing ripening time. With every gesture expressing more clearly than any spoken word his state of mind, the man jerked down the top of his desk, slammed the door, jabbed the elevator bell, and strode grimly out of the building. The man's anger was not one of those flash-like bursts of wrath that, passing as quickly as they come, leave the sky as clear as though no storm had crossed it. Nor was it the slow, kindling, determined anger that, directed against a definite object, burns with steady purpose. It was rather that sullen, hopeless, helpless rage that, finding nothing to vent itself upon, endures even while recognizing that its endurance is in vain. It was the anger of a captive, wild thing against the steel bars of its cage, which, after months of effort, it has found too strong. It was the anger of an explorer against the impassable crags and cliffs of a mountain range that bar his path. It was the anger of a blind man against the darkness that will not lift. The man's work demanded freedom, and the man was not free. In his dreams, at the beginning of his manhood, he had thought himself free to work out his dreams. He had said to himself, "Alone, in my own strength, I will work. Depending upon no man, I will be independent." Limited only by myself, I will be free. He said this because he did not then know the strength of the bars. He had not at that time seen the mountain range. He had not faced the darkness that would not lift. Difficulties, hardships, obstacles, dangers he had expected to face and in his strength to overcome. But the greatest difficulty, the severest hardship, the most trying obstacle, the gravest danger, he had not foreseen. Little by little, as the days and months had passed and the man had made progress in his work, this thing had made itself felt. Little by little, this thing had forced itself upon him until, at last, he was made to realize the fact that he was not independent of, but dependent upon all men. He found that he was limited not alone by himself but by others. He understood now that he was not free to work out his dreams. He saw now that the thing most difficult to overcome. The thing that forbade his progress and refused him freedom was tradition. On every side he met this: it has never been done; it, therefore, can never be done. The fathers of our fathers believed this; therefore, we must believe it. This has always been; therefore, this must always be. Others do this, think this, believe this; therefore, you must so do and think and believe. The man found that beyond a point which others could see, others denied him the right to go. The established customs and habits of others fixed the limit of the progress he could make with the approval of the world. At first he had laughed, secure in his own strength. He had laughed contemptuously, but that was because he did not then realize the power of this thing. Later he did not laugh. He became angry with a sullen, hopeless, helpless rage that accomplished nothing, that could accomplish nothing, but only weakened the man himself. As one shut in a cell exhausts himself beating against the walls, so he wearied himself. Not until he was in the full swing of his work had this thing come upon him in force. 
At the beginning of his manhood life, when, in the strength of his first manhood dreams, he had looked out upon the world as a conquering emperor upon the field of a coming battle, he had not seen this thing. When he was crying out to the world for something to do, this thing had not made itself felt. Not until he had made noticeable progress, not until he was in the full swing of his work, did he find himself forced to reckon with what others had done, or said, or thought, or believed. And never had the man felt his own strength as he felt it now, when face to face with this thing, against which his strength seemed so helpless. If only he could have freedom, he asked nothing but that. As in the beginning he had asked of the world only room and something to do, he asked now only for freedom to do. And the world granted him the freedom of a child who was permitted to play in the yard, but must not go outside the fence. He was free to do his work, to play out his dreams, only so far as the established customs and fixed habits, tradition, willed. Beyond the fence that shuts in the familiar home ground, said the world, you must not go. If you dare climb over the fence, if, if you dare go out of the yard, said the world, I will punish you, I will ridicule you, condemn you, persecute you, ostracize you. I will blame you false, a self-seeker, a pretender, a charlatan, a trickster, a rogue. I will cry you unsafe, dangerous, a menace to society and the race, an evil to all that is good, an unspeakable fool. Stay in the yard, said the world, and you may do what you like. Even in matters of personal habits and taste, the man found that he was not free. In his dress, in the things he ate and drank, in his pleasures, in the books he read, the plays he attended, the pictures he saw, the music he heard, he found that he was expected to obey the mandates of the world. He found that he was expected to conform to tradition, to the established customs and habits of others. In religion, in politics, in society, in literature, in art, as in his work, the world said, Don't go outside the yard. I do not know what work it was that the man was trying to do. It does not matter what his work was. But this I know. In every work that man, since the beginning, has tried to do, man has been hindered as this man was hindered. Man has been denied, as this man was denied, freedom. Tradition has always blocked the wheels of progress. The world has always moved ahead in spite of the world. Just as the world has always crucified its saviors, so always it has hindered and held back its leaders. And this, too, I know. After the Savior is crucified, those who nail him to the cross accept his teaching. While the world hinders and holds back its leaders, it always follows them. But the man did not think of this that day when he left the scene of his labor in such anger. He thought only of that which he was trying to do. When he went back to his work the next day, he was still angry, and with his anger now, came discontent, doubt, and fear to cloud his vision, to clog his brain and weaken his heart. A friend at lunch said, "'You look fagged, knocked out, done up, old man. You've been pegging away too long and too steadily. Why don't you let up for a while, lay off for a week or two, take a vacation?' Again and again, that hot, weary afternoon, the words of the man's friend came back to him until, by evening, he was considering the suggestion seriously. "'Why not?' he asked himself. He was accomplishing little or nothing in his present mood. Why not accept the friendly advice? Perhaps, when he came back, perhaps he could laugh again at the world that denied him freedom. So he came to considering places and plans, and as he considered, there was before him, growing always clearer as he looked, the scenes of his boyhood, the old home of his childhood, 
the place of his yesterdays. There were many places of interest and pleasure to which the man might go, but, among them all, there was no place so attractive as the place of his yesterdays. There was nothing he so wished to do as this, to go back to the old home, and there to be, for a little while, as nearly as a man could be, a boy again. If the man had thought about it, he would have seen in this desire to spend his vacation at the old home something of the same force that so angered him by hindering his work. But the man did not think about it. He wrote a letter to see if he might spend two weeks with the people who were living in the house where he was born, and when an answer came assuring him a welcome, quickly made his arrangements to go. With boyish eagerness, he was at the depot a full half-hour before the time for his train. While he waited, he watched the crowd, feeling an interest in the people who came and went in the never-ending profession that he had not felt since the day when he first came to the city to work out his dreams among men. In the human tide that ebbed and flowed through this world gateway, he saw men of wealth and men of poverty, people of culture and position who had come or were going in Pullman or private cars, and illiterate, stupid, animal-looking emigrants who were crowded, much like cattle, in the lowest class. They were businessmen of large affairs, countrymen with wandering faces, shallow pleasure-seekers, artists and scholars, idle fools, vicious sharks watching for victims, mothers with flocks of children clinging to their skirts, working girls and business women, chattering, laughing schoolgirls, and wretched creatures of the outcast life. All these and many more. And as he watched, perhaps because he was on his vacation, perhaps because of something in his heart to waken by the fact that he was going to his boyhood home, the man felt, as he had never felt before, his kinship with them all. With wealth and poverty, with culture and illiteracy, with pleasure and crime, with sadness and joy, as evidenced in the lives of those who passed in the crowd, the man felt a sympathy and understanding that was strangely new. And more than this, he saw that each was kin to the other. He saw that, in spite of the wide gulf that separated the individuals and the throng, there was something that held them all together. There was a force that influenced all alike. There was a something common to all. In spite of the warring elements of society, in spite of the clashing forces of business, in spite of the conflicting claims of industry represented in the throng, the man recognized a brotherhood, a oneness, a kinship, that held all together. And he felt this with a strange feeling that he had always known that it was there, but had never recognized it before. The man did not realize that this was so, because he was not thinking of the people in relation to his work. He did not know that, because his heart and mind were intent upon the things of his yesterdays, he saw the world in this new light. He did not, then, understand that the force which hindered and hampered him in his work, that denied him the full freedom he demanded, was the same force that he now felt holding the people together. Even as they all, whether traveling in Pullman, private car, or emigrant train, passed over the same rails, so they all, in whatever class they traveled on the road of life, were guided by the traditions, the established customs, the fixed habits that are common to their race or nation. And the strength of a people, as a people, is in this oneness, this force that makes them one, the traditions and customs and habits of life that are common to all. It is the fences of the family dooryards that hold the children of men together and make the people of a race or nation one. So it was that the man, knowing it not, left his work behind and went, for strength and rest, back to the scenes of his yesterdays, in obedience to the command of the very thing that, in his work, had stirred him to such rage. For what, after all, 
our traditions and customs and habits, but a going back into the yesterdays. As the train left the city farther and farther behind, the man's thoughts kept pace with the fast-flying wheels that were bearing him back to the scenes of his childhood. From the present, he retraced his steps to that day when he had dreamed his first manhood dreams, and to those hard days when he was asking of the world only something to do. As, step by step, he followed his way back, incidents, events, experiences, people appeared, even as from the car window he caught glimpses of the whirling landscape, until at last he saw, across the fields and meadows, familiar to his childhood, the buildings of the old home, the house where the little girl had lived, the old church, and the orchard hill where he had sat that day, when the smoke of a distant train moving toward the city became to him a banner leading to the battlefront. Then the long whistle announced the station. Eagerly the man collected his things and, before the train had come to a full stop, swung himself to the depot platform where he was met by his kindly host. As they drove past the fields and pastures, so quiet after the noisy city, the man grew very still. Past the little white church among its old trees at the crossroads, down the hill and across the creek, and slowly up the other side of the valley they went, then past the house where the little girl had lived, and so turned in, at last, to the home of that boy in the yesterdays. And surely it was no discredit to the man that, when they left him alone in his old room to prepare for the evening meal, he scarce could see for tears. Scenes of childhood, memories of the old home, recollections of the dear ones that are gone. No more can man escape these things of the yesterdays than he could avoid the things of today. No more can man deny the past than he can deny the present. Tradition is to men as a governor to an engine. Without its controlling power the race would speed quickly to its own destruction. One of the thirteen truly great things of life is tradition. For two happy, healthful, restful, strengthening, inspiring weeks, the man lived, so far as a man can live, in his yesterdays, in the cool shade of the orchard that once was an enchanted wood, under the old apple-tree ship beside the meadow sea, on the hill where, astride his rail-fence war-horse, the boy had directed the battle and led the desperate charge, and where the man had dreamed the first dreams of his manhood dreams. In the garden where the castaway had lived on his desert island, in the yard near mother's window, where the boy had built the brave playhouse for the little girl next door, in the valley below where the little girl lived, beside the brook that in its young life ran so pure and clear, at the old schoolhouse in the edge of the timber, in the ancient cemetery beside the companion graves, through the woods and fields and pastures, beside the old mill pond with its covered bridge, the man lived again those days of the long ago. But, in the places of his yesterdays, the man found, already, many changes. The houses and buildings were a little more weather-beaten, with many of the boards in the porch floors and steps showing decay. The trees in the orchard were older and more gnarled with here and there gaps in their ranks. The fences showed many repairs. The little schoolhouse was almost shabby and, with the wood cleared away, looked naked and alone. The church, too, was in need of a fresh coat of white, and there were many new graves in the cemetery on the hill. As time had wrought changes in the man himself, even so it had altered the scenes of his boyhood. Always, in men and in things, time works changes. But it is not the changes wrought by time that harms. These come as the ripening of the fruit upon the tree. 
It is the sudden, violent transformation that men are ever seeking to make, both in things and in themselves, that menace the ripening life of the race. It is well, indeed, for the world to hold fast to its traditions. It is well to cling wisely to the past. Nor did the man live again in his yesterdays alone. He could not. Always she was there, his boyhood mate, the little girl who lived next door. But the opening in the hedge that, at the lower end of the garden, separated the boy's home from the home of the little girl, was closed. Long and carefully the man searched, smiling the while, at a foolish wish in his heart, that time would leave the little gate of the yesterdays always open. But the ever-growing branches had woven a thick barrier across the green archway hiding it so securely that, to the man, no sign was left to mark where it had been. With that foolish regret still in his heart, the man asked, quite casually, of the people who were living in the house, if they knew aught about his playmate of the yesterdays. They could tell him very little, only that she lived in a city some distance from his present home. What she was doing, whether married or alone, they could not say. And the man, as he stood with bared head, under the cherry tree in the corner near the hedge, told himself that he was glad that the people could tell him nothing. In his busy, grown-up life there was no room for a woman. In his battle with the things that had challenged his advance, he must be free to fight. It was better for him that the little girl lived only in his yesterdays. The little girl who had helped him play out his boyhood dreams must not hinder him while he worked out the dreams of his manhood. That is what the man told himself as he stood, with bared head, under the cherry tree. With the memory of that play wedding and that kiss in his heart, he told himself that. I wonder sometimes what would happen if men should chance to discover how foolish they really are. No doubt the man reflected, watching the pair of brown birds as they inspected the ripening cherries. No doubt she has long ago forgotten those childish vows. Perhaps in the grown-up world she has even taken new and more binding vows. Would he ever, he wondered, meet one with whom he could make those vows again? Once he had met one with whom he thought he wished to make them, but he knew now that he had been mistaken. And he knew, too, that it was well that he had found his mistake in time. Somehow, as he stood there again under the cherry tree, the making of such vows seemed to be the man more holy, more sacred, than they had ever seen before. Would he dare, he wondered? Was there in all the world a woman with whom he could? The man shrugged his shoulders and turned away. Yes, indeed, it was much better that she lived only in his yesterdays. And still, still, in the man's heart, there was regret that time had closed that gateway of his yesterdays. And often, in the twilight of those evenings, after a day of wandering about the place, visiting old scenes, or talking with the long-time friends of his people, the man would recall the traditions of his family, hearing again the tales his father would tell by the winter fireside, or listening to the stories that his mother would relate on a Sunday or a stormy afternoon. Brave tales they were, brave tales and true stories of the man's forebears, who had lived when the country was young, and who had played no small part in the nation's building. And, as he recalled these traditions of his people, the man's heart thrilled with loyal pride, while he determined strongly to keep the splendid record clean. As a sacred heritage, he would receive these traditions. As a holy duty, he would be true to that which had been. Reluctantly, but with renewed strength and courage, when the time came for his going, the man set his face away from his yesterdays, 
set it again towards his work, toward the working out of his dreams. And as he went, there was for the thing that checked his progress something more than anger. For the thing that forced him to go slowly, there was patience. Standing on the rear platform, as his train moved slowly away, past an incoming train that had just pulled onto a siding, the man saw the neighbor who lived next door to his old home drive hurriedly up. The man in the carriage waved his hand, and the man on the moving train, answering in like manner, wondered idly what had brought the neighbor there. Surely he had not come to bid one who was almost a stranger good-bye. And, strangely enough, as the man watched from the window for a last view of the scenes of his yesterdays, there was in his heart, again, regret that the little opening in the hedge was closed. The city was sweltering in a summer heat-wave. The sun shone through a dingy pall of vile smoke with a sickly yellow glare. From the pavement and gutter, wet by the sprinkling wagons, in a vain effort to lay the dust, a sticky, stinking steam lifted, filling the nostrils and leaving the face with a combination of every filthy odor. The atmosphere fairly reeked with the smell of sweating animals, perspiring humanity, rotting garbage, and vile sewage. And, in the midst of the hot filth, the people moved with languid, feeble manner, their voices worn and pallid, their eyes dull and weary, their voices thin and fretful. The woman's heart was faint with the weight of suffering that she was helpless to relieve. Her quivering nerves shrieked at the horror of conditions that she could not change. Her brain ached with contemplation of the cruel necessity that tortured humankind. Her very soul was sick with the hopelessness of the gasping, choking, struggling multitude who, in their poverty and blindness, toiled to preserve their lives of sorrow and pain, and sought relief from their labors and pleasures more horrible and destructive by far than the slavery to which they gave themselves for the means to pay. The woman was tired, very tired. Heart and nerves and brain and soul and body were tired with a weariness that, it seemed to her, would never pass. She was tired of the life into which she had gone because it was the custom of the age and because of her necessity, the life into which she had not wished to go because it denied her womanhood. Because she knew herself to be a woman, she felt that she was being robbed of the things of her womanhood. The brightness and beauty, the strength and joyousness of her womanhood were, by her, held a sacred trust to be kept for her children, and through them for the race. She wearied of the struggle to keep the things of her womanhood from the world that was taking them from her, that put a price upon them, that used them as thoughtlessly as it used the stone and metal and wood that it takes from the earth. She was tired of the horrid life that crowded her so closely, that crushed itself against her in the crowded cars, that leered into her face on the street, that reached out for her from every side, that hungered for her with a fierce hunger and longed for her with a damnable, fiendish longing. She was faint and weak from contact with the loathsome things that she was forced to know, and that would leave their mark upon her womanhood as surely as the touch of pitch defiles. And she was weary, so weary, waiting for that one with whom she could cross the threshold of that old, old open door. Little time was left to her now for thought and preparation for the life of which she had dreamed. Little heart was left to her now for dreaming. Little courage was left for hope. But still her dreams lived. Still she waited. Still, at times, she hoped. But the thing that most of all wearied the woman, who knew that she was a woman, was this. The restless, discontented, dissatisfied, uneasy spirit of the age that, 
scorning tradition and a shallow, silly pride, struggles for and seems to value only that which is new, regardless of the value of this thing itself. The new in dress, regardless of beauty or fitness in the costume. The new in thought, regardless of the saneness of the thinking. The new in customs and manner of living. The new in the home, in marriage relation, in the education and rearing of children. New philosophy, new science, new religion, new art, new music, new books, new cooking, new women. It sometimes appears that the crime of crimes, the most degrading disgrace these days, is to be held old-fashioned, behind the times, out of date, and that everything, everything not new, is old-fashioned. Everything not of the times is behind the times. Everything not down to date is out of date. Patriotism, love of country, is old, very old, and is also, or therefore, quite out of date. To speak or write of patriotism seriously, or to consider it a factor in life, to live it, depend upon it, or appeal to it, is to be considered very strangely and sadly old-fashioned. The modern, down-to-date age considers seriously not patriotism, but graft, and price, and boodle. These are the modern forces by which the nation is said to be governed. These are the means by which the nation strives to go ahead. To talk only of these things, to believe only in these things, to live only these things, is to be modern and down, low down, to date. To work from any motive but the making of money is to be queerly behind the times. To write a book or paint a picture or sing a song, to preach a sermon, to do anything for any reason under heaven but for cash, marks you a fanatic and a fool. To believe, even, that anyone does anything save for the money there is in it, stamps you simple and unsophisticated indeed. To profess such belief, save you put your tongue in your cheek, marks you peculiar. Long, long ago, mankind put its best strength, its best thought, its best life into its works, without regard for the price, simply because it was its work. And the work so wrought in those queer old-fashioned days has most curiously endured. There is little danger that much of our modern, down-to-date work will endure, for the very simple reason that we do not want it to endure. The world wants something new. Down-to-dateism does not want its work to last longer than the dollar it brings. Never fear, the world is always getting something new. But, that we have grown so bravely away from this queer, old-fashioned days, we have not succeeded yet in growing altogether away from the works that those old-fashioned days produced. But patience, old world, patience. Down-to-datism may, in time, accomplish even this. In those old, old times, it was the fashion for men and women to mate in love. In love they planned and builded their homes. In love they brought forth children and reared them, with queer, old-fashioned notions about marriage, to serve the race. In those times, now so sadly old and out of date, men planned and labored for homes and children, and women were homemakers and mothers. But the world is now far from those ancient ways and out-of-date ideals. Marriage has little to do with homemaking these modern days. It has almost nothing to do with children. We have, in our down-to-datism, come to be a nation of childless wives and homeless husbands. We are dwellers in flats, apartments, and hotels, where children would be in the way, but dogs are welcome if only they be useless dogs. We live in houses that are always for sale or rent. It is our proud boast that we possess nothing that is not on the market for a price. The thought of selling a home is not painful, for we do not know the value of a home. We have, for convenience, to gratify our modern, down-to-date, ever-changing tastes, popularized the divorce court, 
as though a husband or wife of more than three seasons is old-fashioned, and should be discarded for one of a newer pattern, more in harmony with our modern ideals of marriage. From the down-to-date, the all-the-way-down-to-date woman, I mean, one gains new and modern ideas of the service that womankind is to render to the race. Almost it is as though God did not know what he was about when he made woman. To place a home above a club, a nursery above the public platform, a fireside above politics, the prattle of children above newspaper notoriety, the love of boys and girls above the excitement of social conquest, the work of bearing strong men and true women for the glory of the race, above the near intellectual pursuits and the attainments of shallow thinking. All this is to be sadly old-fashioned. All this is so behind the times that one must confess such shocking taste with all humiliation. I hereby beg pardon of the down-to-date powers that be, and most humbly pray that they will graciously forgive my boorishness. I assure you that, after all, I am not so benighted that I do not realize how seriously babies would interfere in the affairs of those down-to-date women who are elevating the race. By all means, let the race be elevated, though it perish, childless, in the process. Very soon now, womanhood itself will be out of date for the world, and this also seems to be evolving something new. So the woman who knew herself to be a woman, most of all, was tired of things new, and longed, deep in her heart, for the old, old things that were built into the very foundation of the race, and that no amount of gilding and trimming and ornamenting can ever cover up or hide, and no amount of disregarding or ignoring can do away with, lest indeed the race perish from the earth. "'And when do you take your vacation?' asked a fellow worker as they were leaving the building after the day's work. "'Not until the end of the month.' returned the woman wearily. And you? Me? Oh, I must go Monday, and it's such a shame. I've just received a charming invitation for two weeks later, but no one cares to exchange times with me. No one, you see, can go on such short notice. I don't suppose that you... She paused suggestively. I will exchange time with you, said the woman simply. Will you really? Now that is clever of you. Are you sure you don't mind? Indeed, I will be glad to get away earlier. "'But can you get ready to go so soon?' The woman smiled. "'I shall do very little getting ready.' The other looked at her musingly. "'No, I suppose not. You are so queer that way. Seems to me I can't find time enough to make new things. One just must keep up, you know.' "'Is it settled, then?' asked the woman at the corner where they parted. "'It will be so good of you,' murmured the other." The woman had many invitations to spend her brief vacation with friends, but that night she wrote a letter to the people who lived in her old home, and asked if they would take her for two weeks, requesting that they telegraph their answer. When the message came, she wired them to meet her and went by the first train. At the old home station, her train took a siding at the upper end of the yard to let the outgoing express pass. From the window where she sat, the woman saw a tall man, dressed in a business suit of quiet gray, standing on the rear platform of the slowly moving outbound train and waving his hand to someone on the depot platform. Just a glimpse she had of him before he passed from sight as her own train moved ahead to stop at the depot, where she was greeted by her host. Not until they were driving toward her old home did the woman know who it was that she had seen. The woman was interested in all that the people had to tell her about her old playmate and asked not a few questions, but she was glad that he had not known of her coming. She was glad that he was gone. The man and the woman were strangers, and the woman did not wish to meet a stranger. The boy lived, for her, only in her yesterdays, and the woman told herself that she was glad, because she feared that the man, 
if she met him, would rob her of the boy. She feared that he would be like so many that she had been forced to know in the world that had denied her womanhood. She had determined to be for two weeks, as far as it is possible for a woman to be, just a girl again, and she wanted no company other than the little boy who lived only in the long ago. As soon as supper was over, she retired to her room, to the little room that had been hers in her childhood, where, before lighting the lamp, she sat for a while in the open window, looking out into the night, breathing long and deep of the pure air that was sweetly perfumed with the odors of the meadows and fields. In the brooding quiet, in the soft night sounds, in the fragrant breeze that gently touched her hair, she felt the old, old forces of life calling to her womanhood, and felt her womanhood stir in answer. For a long time she sat there, giving free rein to the thoughts and longings that, in her city life, she was forced to suppress. Rising at last, as though with quick resolution, she lighted her lamp and prepared for bed, loosening her hair and deftly arranging the beautiful, shining mass that fell over her shoulders in a long braid. Then, smiling, as she would have smiled at the play of a child, she knelt before her trunk and, taking something from its depth, quickly put out the light again, and once more seated herself in a low rocking-chair by the open window. Had there been any one to see, they would not have understood. Who is there, indeed, to understand the heart of womanhood? The woman, sitting in the dark before the window in that room, so full of the memories of her childhood, held close in her arms an ancient doll, whose face had been washed so many times by its little mother that it was but a smudge of paint. That night the woman slept as a child sleeps, after a long, busy, happy childhood day. Slept to open her eyes in the morning while the birds in the trees outside her window were heralding the coming of the sun. Rising, she looked, and saw the sky glorious with the light of dawning day. Flaming streamers of purple and scarlet and silver floated high over the buildings and trees next door. The last of the pale stars sank into the ocean of blue and, from beyond the old orchard above the house where the boy lived, long shafts of golden light shot up, as if aimed by some heavenly archer hiding behind the hill. When the day was fully come, the woman quickly dressed and went out into the yard. The grass was dew-drenched and fragrant under her feet. The flowers were fresh and inviting, but she did not pause until, out in the garden, at the farthest corner, close by the hedge, she stood under the cherry-tree, sacred cathedral of her yesterdays. When she turned again to go back to the house, the woman's face was shining with a light that glows only in the faces of those women who know that they are women and who dream the dreams of womanhood. So the woman spent her days, down in the little valley by the brook that, as it ran over the pebbly bars, drifted in the flickering light and shade of the willows, slipped between the green banks, or crept softly beneath the grassy arch, sang its song of the yesterdays. Up in the orchard beyond the neighboring house were so many, many times she had helped the boy to play out his dreams. On the porch in the soft twilight, watching the stars as they blossomed above, while up from the dusky shadows in the valley below came the call of the whippoorwill, and the bats on silent wings flitted to and fro, out in the garden under the cherry tree in the corner near the hedge, in all the loved haunts of the boy and girl. She spent her days. And the tired look went out of her eyes. Strength returned to her weary body, courage to her heart, and calmness to her overwrought nerves. Amid those scenes of her yesterdays she was made ready to go back to the world that values so highly the things that are new, and, in the strength of the old, old things, to keep the dreams of her womanhood. And, as she went, there was that in her face that all men loved to see in the face of womankind. Poor old world! Some day, perhaps, 
it will awake from its feverish dream to find that God made some things in the heart of the race too big to be outgrown. End of chapter 6